The Revolt of 2020 by Patrick Johnston. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Patrick Johnston. Read by Daniel Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. Chapter 10. Strawberry Point, Iowa. Turn it up, baby. An unshaven, thin farmer in his fifties stepped out of the bathroom as he fastened the overalls at the shoulder. Come on, it's starting. All right, hold your horses. The graying, 350-pound woman who sat in front of the television peeling potatoes reached for the remote control. New York City, New York. Welcome, my fellow Americans, to another lively broadcast of Tanya Harden Live. I'm Tanya Harden, the professional ice skater turned television talk show host proclaimed. It has been 10 days since the bombing of the Reproductive Rights Convention in Columbus, Ohio. Since that time, it has been a political sprint in the White House to crack down on terrorism and on what President Brighton calls a climate of hatred and intolerance which breeds violence. Approximately one hour ago, President Brighton held a news conference with several physicians who have been threatened or targeted by anti-abortion fanatics. She detailed the plan to crack down on gun violence in America. She has issued an executive order to ban all assault rifles and handguns, instructing gun owners to turn in their semi-automatic weapons in 30 days or else be charged with a felony. To discuss the week's events, Representative James Knight from Wyoming is back with us. He will, as usual, represent the right, while the President's Chief of Staff, Dina Halucci, is here to represent the views of the administration. We are honored to have you both with us tonight. Mr. Knight nodded and Ms. Halucci responded, It is good to be here. We want to focus on gun control tonight. Strawberry Point, Iowa. Give him heaven, Jimmy. The farmer sat down in his sofa chair and scratched the spotted mutt reclining at his feet. New York City, New York. Well, I'm not turning in my guns, Mrs. Harden, Knight stated matter-of-factly. A just law is a law that squares with the moral law of God. An unjust law is out of harmony with the moral law. The president has no right to legislate evil to be good and good to be evil. Margaret Brighton's laws aiding and abetting child killers and outlawing guns in the hands of the law-abiding citizenry are not binding because they are unconstitutional and immoral. Miss Halucci gave James Knight a stern grimace. Tread carefully, Mr. Knight. The FBI is listening. Have the common sense to temper your rhetoric. Knight put out both of his hands, palms down, and made as if he were trembling. Oh, I'm scared, he mocked. Hardin sensed Halucci's annoyance at the brazen comments of the famed right-wing congressman. Miss Halucci, what do you think of Congressman Knight's views? They are illegal, she blurted out. She then looked at the congressman and repeated in a calmer tone, They are criminal. Would you like the phone number for the president's fascist thought police, said Knight? Do you mean to imply that you could look into the eyes of 32-year-old Dr. Ruth Neville, who has been receiving death threats from anti-abortion fanatics this week, and whose clinic has twice been the target of vandals, and tell her that the man who threatened to kill her has a right to own a gun? Knight responded, If anybody should be disarmed, it's Dr. Neville, an abortionist who cuts up about 20 to 30 Americans every single day. I think Mr. Knight, continued Ms. Halucci, her face glowing red, is the epitome of intolerance and hatred in America. Strawberry Point, Iowa Honey, if you think Jimmy Knight's bad, wait till you get a load of me, the farmer shouted at the TV. His wife dropped a peeled potato into a pan beside her chair. Would you shut up and listen? You know they can't hear you. New York City, New York. Ms. Halucci looked at Mr. Knight with a scowl of disapproval as a physician would look at a loathsome pestilence or a pest controller at a termite in the basement. Those who hold such views as yours are a threat to peace and freedom. What the Hitler-ruled Nazis were to the Jews and the KKK is to the African-American community, so are those who hold such violent opinions to the pro-choicers among us. Excuse me while I put on my white hood and hoist my burning cross into the air, the African-American rep from Wyoming said with a laugh while Tanya Harden tried to conceal hers. 
This is the old liberal trick of comparing political opponents to Hitler to justify persecuting and censoring them. You liberals overuse Hitler. How about Stalin, Castro, Mao Zedong, or the Clintons? All of whom were very strong proponents of gun control, by the way. Any state socialist besides Adolf Hitler, another gun control activist. Although in his defense, Hitler was not quite as aggressive as Brighton in trying to ban guns so quickly. That comment was so full of offensive statements that Halucci felt flustered. She puffed out her lips and cleared her throat. Brighton's doing the nation a favor in trying to rid this nation of your hate-filled rhetoric, she snapped spitefully. You right-wing religious extremists are an embarrassment to this country. When you can't refute them, Knight retorted with a light-hearted grin. Call them names, sick the fascist thought police on them, or disarm them and then kidnap them and throw them into prison with raw executive terror. That's right, we're going to silence and disarm right-wing extremists like you and do peace-loving Americans a great favor. Thank you for that confession, Ms. Halucci. For a moment I thought you were going to pretend that the president's gun control statutes were designed to cut down on crime, but I'm glad to hear you admit that what she really wants to do is silence dissent by force. Knight turned his gaze to the host. Gun control is not about crime, Tanya. It's about control. Criminals and tyrants prefer a disarmed populace because they don't want their victims to fight back. Most mass murders take place in so-called gun-free zones like public schools and cities like Baltimore, Chicago, L.A., and Washington, D.C. Some privileges and rights have to be set aside in extraordinary circumstances in order to restore peace, Halucci responded in a calmer tone. The right to keep and bear arms takes a back seat to the safety of reproductive health care providers and children. God-given rights are inalienable, Knight responded. They don't come from man, and except for punishment for a crime, man cannot legitimately revoke them. And please don't pretend you're concerned about violence against children. You're for safe, legal, and rare child-killing by dismemberment, remember? Alucci returned to her prepared statement, which she had memorized. The Second Amendment says, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What was the basis for the right to keep and bear arms? It was for the maintenance of a well-regulated militia. The original state militias secured their state from foreign invaders. That'd be the National Guard of each state today. Owning sporting weapons is not a Second Amendment right, but a privilege offered by the government. Our American forefathers applied the Second Amendment to the individual, Knight responded. Well, that is not the opinion of this administration. I have quotes from the authors of the Second Amendment, Knight said as he held up a small black book. I can quote from presidents, Supreme Court judges, Patrick Henry, most Americans know that the president's crime reduction measures are in their best interests, Halushi asserted. They have had friends or family die from gun violence. They've known children who have been accidentally shot or maimed. I had a cousin who accidentally shot himself in the foot, Knight interjected. There you go, Halushi chirped. But he shot the intruder, too, so it was worth it. Halushi and Hardin exchanged a confused glance, wondering whether Knight was telling the truth or a joke. Even if President Brighton's gun control measures would make us safer. They won't, but even if they did... Liberty is more important than safety. Stay armed and stay free. Give up your arms and be safe in a cage at the mercy of your slave masters. How many guns do you own, Mr. Knight? Tanya asked. Yeah, please enlighten us, added Halucci. Oh, I've got a whole arsenal, and I'm not turning them in. He glanced back over at Ms. Halucci, saw her roll her eyes in disgust, and he laughed out loud. Halucci was stunned by the congressman's fearlessness in the face of the law. An arsenal? You are crazy! If you don't like guns, don't buy them. I'm pro-choice when it comes to stockpiling weapons. Well, Halucci squealed, I'm pro-choice about the government taking them from you. Strawberry Point, Iowa. The farmer pulled a shotgun off the floor next to his sofa chair and shouted, Come on, baby, come and get it! He cocked his weapon. You gonna get the ammo first! His wife paused her potato peeling and stared at her husband for an uneasy moment. He just glanced over at her with a cheesy grin on his unshaven face. Bud, she said with a slur, scratching her stomach through a tear in her shirt, Sometimes you scare me. Bozeman, Montana. 
Well, I'm not going to let them do that in my precinct, Sheriff Randy Woods blurted out in his characteristic country boy drawl. He flung the entertainment section of the newspaper, which he considered worthless, at the trash can by the door. He was a dark-skinned, gray-haired man in his late fifties with a leathery, wrinkled face. He wore a black cowboy hat and carried a six-inch stainless steel three fifty seven pistol in his hip holster. He'd never got into those fancy semi-autos. "'Will you at least call him back?' the elderly secretary implored him, standing in the doorway. She saw that his newspaper had missed the trash can, and she bent down to pick it up for him. "'Why in the world would I want to do that, pray tell?' He's the Attorney General of the United States, Sheriff. And I'm a fourth-generation Boy Scout. Which one can you wipe your rear end with? Sheriff! If he calls again, just take a message, he said in a calmer voice. That's your job. Now leave me alone and let me do mine. He turned his attention to the rest of his newspaper. She nodded reluctantly and then half shut the door. With only her head inside the office, she warned him. They ain't gonna take too kindly to your buck in a federal law, Sheriff. Please, he dropped his newspaper onto his cluttered desk. Does your husband beat you for your nagging? No, she responded blank-faced. What a saint! I'm going, she shut the door. He glanced down at the headline of the newspaper, which read, Federal Government Protects Reproductive Rights. Sheriff Woods sighed heavily. I'm about fed up. That evening, Dunworth, with the Department of Justice, arrived at the airport nearest Bozeman and was met by dozens of cameras and newspaper reporters. They followed him and his fleet of cars to the sheriff's office, and Dunworth entered and found Sheriff Woods sitting on a swivel chair next to the secretary and eating a foot-long chili dog. Sheriff Woods cast a suspicious grimace at the city suits that barged hurriedly into the small waiting room. Who are you? he slurred. He looked over their shoulders and the flash of a camera through the window made him squint. Under orders from the Attorney General of the United States, I am placing you under— Get out of my precinct, Sheriff Woods shouted loudly as he stood up and pointed out the door. Go back to that commie pit from which you crawled or I will have you arrested. You have no business interfering with local law enforcement. Suddenly, Sheriff Woods found himself staring down six forty-five caliber barrels. Sorry to disappoint you, said Dunworth, tongue-in-cheek, as he calmly walked around the counter and removed the sheriff's gun from his holster. He had a look at the stainless steel pistol and mumbled, Hmm, interesting. He handed the weapon to a subordinate. The United States government is removing you from power because you have obstructed justice. Obstructed justice? Sheriff Woods glanced at the elderly secretary who sat next to him and mumbled. Call the boys and tell them what's happening. Oh, they'll find out in the morning paper. Lady, don't you so much as look at a phone. Dunworth ordered an agent to frisk the sheriff and handcuff him. Sheriff Woods tried to maintain his composure and reason with Dunworth. Under Section 230.29 of the Montana State Code, local law enforcement, the law of the United States government takes precedence. Dunworth gestured to his men to put their guns back into their holsters. We had a civil war over this, remember? He pushed Sheriff Woods towards the front door as he turned and spoke to a subordinate. Harris, in 20 minutes, call all the men employed under Woods and inform them that the Department of Justice has arrested him for obstruction of justice. Tell them to meet here at 6 in the morning for instructions. Yes, sir. And Harris, keep this lady off the phones. He gestured to the secretary, sitting with a look of shock on her face and her hands still in the air. Columbus, Ohio. Mr. Hamilton, I think it is time to get Ronald Samuels, the agent in the black van informed the director of the FBI on the laptop video phone. He has encouraged church members to not be forthright when they are questioned by our agents. He speaks against abortion and the gay lifestyle. Hamilton answered, well, he might still try to make contact with our suspects. We don't have any other real good lead with Jameson other than the mother-in-law, who is either holding her secrets well with modest interrogation, or honestly hasn't heard a thing. Ron Samuel's influence is growing, sir. He has genuine hero status in the minds of more and more every day. Hamilton shook his head in frustration. Why can't we find Jameson? We have hundreds of agents scouring every main road to Texas without a single sighting. They're probably in Texas by now if they even went to Texas. 
Sir, I think Ron Samuels is withholding information from us about Jameson. He let Jameson's wife and children stay in his rental and deceived us about their whereabouts. He has guns that the president has ruled illegal in her executive order. It hasn't gone into effect yet, said Hamilton. But he intends to keep them, and he is encouraging the members of his church to keep their guns. He has made an appointment with local politicians tomorrow, and he intends to persuade them to oppose the Justice for All initiative. I know, I know. I just hate to lose one of my best connections to the Jamesons. We need to get Ron Samuels, sir. Under interrogation, he'll be a goldmine of intelligence, but if we let his influence continue to escalate, he could give us ten more David Jamesons in a year. What was that? Ron Samuels sat up in bed with an adrenaline rush. He nudged his wife, who lay beside him. Did you hear that? His wife rolled over and yawned. No, you woke me up. Pastor Samuels leaned over and reached into the top drawer of the small dresser next to the bed and pulled out his forty-four magnum. Oh, would you stop being so paranoid, hon, said his wife. It's your sleep apnea. If you would use that sleep contraption, you could sleep better. Now put your gun down. Shh, he said with his index finger over his lips and his gun in his other hand. You are beginning to scare me, said his wife. Please pray. He tiptoed out the door of their bedroom into the hall. His wife sighed and plopped back down into the bed, pulling the covers up to her neck. Dear God, help Ronnie not to be paranoid. He looked down the hall at the door of the room where his three young children slept. He listened intently for a moment for any sounds in the house. He recalled the surprise visit from David and wondered if he had returned. He walked out of the hallway and into the living room with both hands clasping his large pistol. He looked through the crack in the drapes in the large front window and scoured the yard. Not a thing. He walked to the front door and wiggled the doorknob to make sure that it was locked. Then he double-checked the bolt lock, barely visible in the dim light. He lowered his gun and walked more casually to the back door. He made sure that it was locked, and it was. Suddenly, a loud crash that chilled him to the bone came from behind him. He immediately squatted and turned around with his handgun pointed at the dark figures that rushed into his living room. Get out! He screamed at the shadowy figures. Get out of my house or I'll kill you! The first federal agent to enter had a shotgun with a floodlight fixed to the barrel. The intruder searched the room with his light as Pastor Samuels yelled at them to get out of his house. Laser sights spread back and forth across the room, searching for a target. When the light rested upon Pastor Samuels and they saw that he had a gun, they began to yell and scream for him to put his gun down. Pastor Samuels raced from the room into the hallway as he pulled the trigger of his gun in the direction of the invaders. Blam! 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 Three shots. Ron Samuels made it to the hallway and was keenly aware of his wife's scream from the bedroom and the cries of his children down the hall. He raised his voice. Get out of my house or I will kill you! Johnson's down, one of the agents said as the others cursed. Move! Move into the bedroom! This is the FBI! Put down your weapon! Get down on the ground now! Pastor Samuels prepared to try to reason with the invaders when he heard glass break in the room of his children. A surge of fear rushed over him, and he stood to his feet, ran to the room, and opened the door to find the red dot of a laser sight on his chest. Two muffled shots preceded a tearing pain in his chest that knocked the breath out of him. He fell flat on his back, gasping for air through a mouthful of hot blood. His wife swung open the bedroom door with a shotgun at her side. Blam! sounded the painfully loud shotgun in her fragile hands. She managed to completely blow the head off the first agent in the hallway before piercing fire stung her in her right shoulder and knocked her back. Her gun was knocked on the floor and she found herself staring at three shadowy figures who pointed their laser-beam-sighted guns at her chest. "'Ronnie!' she screamed through the pain. She looked under the legs of one of the men and could see a flashlight shining on the gasping, pale face of her dear husband, blood spilling out of the corner of his blue lips. She wept as she called out his name. "'Ronnie!' One of the men shouted at her. "'Get on the ground, face down, now!' She immediately tried to comply but found her right arm crooked and useless. Her face was suddenly shoved into the ground by a large hand and both of her arms were pulled behind her back. She shrieked in excruciating pain. My arm! Her screams brought no pity. The men jerked her arms together behind her back and she screamed again. What are you doing with my children? 
Didn't tell you, did we? The agent put a knee in her back and handcuffed her wrists together. She screamed again and became nauseated with pain and grief. She was able to lift her head and see one of her crying children carried from their room by a black-clothed agent who stepped over their dying father. The little girl cried out for her father. Daddy! Daddy! Oh, God, no! Mrs. Samuels cried out. She saw her husband close his eyes and she slipped into unconsciousness. Thank you for listening to this reading from The Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020 and The Uncivil War of 2020, are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's docjohnstonnovels.com. O Lord, turn us back to you. Forgive our sins and heal our land.